Good morning, church. Keep your Bibles open there. We're going to look at this passage a little more closely. Genesis 3. And good morning to all the guests. My name is Kenny. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining us this morning. I hope you will hang out for our newcomer meet and greet. I haven't had a lot of days in court, but I have had a few. (laughs) I remember my first day in court vividly. Minor altercation with the law. I was 15 years old, and my best friend Kurt was 16 years old, he had gotten his driver's license and was driving a beat-up car like a, like a, that he had bought for like 300 bucks, a Chevelle. And, and he picked me up from the dog kennel where we both worked one night late, and he asked me if I wanted to drive. But I didn't have a license because I was only 15. So I decided what every 15-year-old boy would decide. <laughs> yes, I want to drive. And I knew how to drive. But the problem was the car. The car didn't know how to drive. The car didn't want to drive. So I can still remember pulling out. It was late. It was dark. We lived in Delaware County, or lived right outside Garnet Valley. It was an Ivy Mills road, dark road. Nobody's ever on it. And I started driving that car down the road, but it kept stalling on me. And, and sputtering out, and I put it in park and start it back up again. And so we're trying to get down the road, but this is, a, this is a tough way to go if the car keeps stalling. So I see some headlights behind me coming up. I'm like, oh man, some people coming behind us. Try to get the car started, Just keep puttering along. So finally I say, you know what, I'm gonna let this car pass. I'm gonna pull into this person's driveway, let the car pass, and then when the car passes, we'll see if we can get this thing warmed up and we'll continue on our little drive. The car pulls in behind me in this person's driveway, and I thought, wow, of all the places that I could decide to pull off, I pulled off in the home of the person that's trying to get by me. Now, I pulled into their driveway, and as I looked in the rearview mirror, I realized it was not a homeowner. It was your friendly Pennsylvania State Trooper. No siren. We weren't that bad just the light going. So I'm like, what are we going to do? So quick thinking, 15 and 16 year old. We decide, switch spots. (laughs) Which is a pretty good idea, right? So we switch spots. He said, put it in park, and then we jumped. I put it in park, so I thought, And we jumped across, but when we jumped, my foot hit the accelerator and I had left the car in reverse. So the car slammed right into the policeman's car. And as that was happening, I had for the first time, I think, I don't know how many times in my life I've had this, but I had the light on me. 
What are you doing? It's a bad night. Got a little summons to report to the local judge. I had a date. We both had to go because he was guilty for letting me drive and I was guilty for driving and I didn't know what was going to happen. I did not tell my parents. I still haven't told them. <laughs> now I have. I did not tell my parents. And guys, I remember I got up that morning to go meet with Judge Leon Mascara. I remember the name. I, it haunted my dreams. And I just remember walking into that courtroom, and I remember there was a lady who met us there. Me and Kurt, we were quaking. I feel it right now, like quaking in our shoes. Like, what is going to happen? Am I ever going to be able to get my license, or is that like one and done? And so I remember standing there, and she said, the judge will be with you in just a few minutes. And we stood in this little tiny courtroom in, in Delaware County, and I stood there waiting. And I don't know what I thought was going to come from behind the wall. But whatever it was, was, was something I was very afraid of. And he came out, Leon Mascara, and he didn't play around. He held us to the consequences of a $300 fine, which was a lot for a 15-year-old kid who wasn't going to tell his parents, who wouldn't have paid for it anyway. He held us to the consequences of a $300 fine, but he did it in a way that motivated me to do the right thing. There was something about Judge Leon Mascara's presence that was simultaneously awe-inspiring. It elicited my respect. And it was also something fatherly that elicited my affection or at least my motivation to please him. This morning, we're going into the courtroom with God. Genesis 3, the passage Shay just read to us, is God coming looking for the man and woman after the devastating fall into sin. Organizing structure, four clearly defined parts of a judicial proceeding. I'm aided by James Boyce's outline on this section of Genesis. This is Adam and Eve's first day in court. This is humanity's first day in the courtroom with God. And there is a tension that we feel in this passage that I think at first reading, at first glance, and even at first thinking about it, there's some things we're going to see about God here that you don't expect to see in the courtroom with God. Four clearly defined parts of a judicial proceeding is what we see taking place here. The first part of a judicial proceeding is always the arraignment. The arraignment. What's an arraignment? For those of you who are not legally trained or haven't been, haven't had experiences with the law like me and Gabe and many others have. 
The first step is the arraignment. That's the first step in a criminal proceeding. And in the first step of a courtroom proceeding, the defendant is brought in front of the court to hear the charges against them and to enter their plea. What we have here is a divine inquest into the proceedings. And when we consider what's happening here in Genesis 3, the holy God, we know, creator of the universe, we know from Genesis 1, sustainer of everyone and everything, who has given them everything in the garden, everything that was good with one prohibition, And he has been rebelled against just three pages in to our Bibles. And the reader is left wondering, what's going to happen? And you can't help but have this feeling. There's going to be hell to pay. Verse 8 tells us, if you look back into verse 8, that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and the Scripture says that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord because they were afraid. Here He comes. He's looking for us. Hide. Now, the Scripture tells us in verse 8 that God was walking in the garden. And Moses even goes to a great length to tell us that he was the time of day in which he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which is a very interesting observation to make. In In the afternoon breeze of the day, God is walking. Why? Why that detail? Why is God walking in the garden? We assume because he's coming to get them. Why is he walking in the cool of the day? Well, in that area of the world, it's very hot. You don't take long walks in the heat of the day. You wait until there's an afternoon breeze. You wait until the cool of the day. So it was part of the regular activity of God with those he had created and loved to take a walk with them in the cool of the day where they experienced relationship and enjoyed fellowship together and intimacy. It was part of their regular practice in the day. And so God is doing what he usually does. God's walking in the garden is not unusual. This is not This is not unusual behavior on the part of God to walk in the garden with his creatures, with those that he loves, with those that he has created and been so good to. This is not unusual. What's unusual is the way that they have reacted. What's unusual is that they are hiding in the trees that God has created for them. That's what is unusual. Sin does this. Sin distorts your view of God. So it's not just like, it's not just, it's the the effect 
of sin, like we get, the consequences of sin are these painful feelings of shame, guilt, and fear. It's actually like what sin does. It actually distorts your ability to view God rightly. And so this God who has been nothing but good, and they have experienced his grace and his bounty and his provision, they have rebelled against him, and now they hide in fear from him. God's walking is not unusual. It may seem unusual, but it is not unusual that God would come looking for you. It may seem unusual, but it's not unusual that God would come walking down the street where you live. Why? Because he wants to have relationship with you. Because he wants to experience fellowship with you. You thought in the courtroom of God, the answer would be because he wants to get you. Because he wants to judge you. But he actually wants to have and experience closeness and a joyful relationship with you. What's unusual is that we don't want to spend time with him. What's unusual is that we hide from him. What's unusual is that we run away from him. In guilt and in fear and in shame, we think wrongly about him. God would have you would you have God? That's the question that searches our hearts. And the judge of the whole earth begins the arraignment with a question. What's the question? The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God wasn't seeking information. He wasn't asking the question because he didn't know the answer. This is what is referred to in literature as a rhetorical question. Now, we know a rhetorical question is, is, a, is a question that doesn't it's, that doesn't, it's not looking for a response. But what is it then? What is a rhetorical question? A rhetorical question functions actually as a statement. It's a, it's a question used to make a statement. When God asks, where are you? He's not seeking any new information. He's wanting the man to come out. To give an account of himself. The effect of the use of a rhetorical question is pedagogical. It's educational. It's instructive. So when God asks, where are you? He is instructing Adam and Eve, and he is instructing us as listeners today. Their reply shows that they understood the question. They understood the question as an, as an invitation to come out of hiding and explain their behavior. It was intended to prompt Adam 
to consider his wrongdoing. There will be no possibility of reconciliation if the guilty are unwilling to own up to their wrongs. This this is as true for us today as it was for Adam and, and Eve. There will be no possibility of reconciliation with God and with one another if the guilty are unwilling to own up to their contribution, to what they've done as wrong. Some of you, and we'll be talking about this today, but some of you are experiencing that with God and you're experiencing it with others. And you're at a standstill. You're in a deadlock maybe with God and with others because reconciliation won't happen unless you are willing to take responsibility to own up for you. Easier said than done. Because sometimes we don't want to take responsibility for the part that we've played. And this is what we see happening in the garden. The first step, the first step in being reconciled to God, first step is to stop running, to stop hiding, to stop blame shifting, to stop excusing, to stop your moral improvement plan, to stop all of these things, all these efforts that you're making to try to get the discomfort of the responsibility that's mine, to get out from under that and to acknowledge that you have done wrong and that you need help. That's the first step in becoming a Christian. It said, Jesus, I need what you're offering. Jesus, I can't save myself. Jesus, I can't get out from under this. It's the, it's the picture of the tax collector praying. The, 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 the story that Jesus tells, two men go down to pray. One is a Pharisee. One's a religious leader. And he, thanks, he spends his time thanking God that he's not like all these other people. And then the tax collector just sits there, just beating his breast, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord. Have mercy on me, Lord. And Jesus says, One man went back to his home justified. Do you know which man it was? It was the one who said, I need you, Jesus. Have mercy on me. Is that you? Is that you? Have you been willing to say to the Lord, I need you? I know you came for the sick. That you didn't come for the healthy, you came for the sick. I'm sick. I'm sick. I need you. That's the first step in reconciliation with God and in with one another. It's a, it's a willingness to own up to your wrongs. The Lord's walking in the garden of some of our lives right now. He's coming to you in your sin. He's coming to you in your guilt. He's coming to you in your fear. He's coming to you in your hiding. He's coming to you in your excuse making. He's coming to you in your running away. And he's pursuing you to help you. He's pursuing you with fatherly affection. He's pursuing you because he loves you. And there's this gentleness about his inquisition. That's the tension I was talking about. Is that it's, a, it's definitely a courtroom scene. And God is holy. 
But there's this fatherly tenderness, tenderness to his coming to us, even in the arraignment. Remember how I told you in the beginning of Genesis, the word for God that Moses used, that God used to describe himself in the chapter 1 of Genesis was Elohim, used 31 times. It's translated God. 31 times in the first chapter, and it depicts God as what he's, who he's being shown to be in the first chapter. He's all-powerful. He's the sovereign creator of all. He rules over all things. He speaks and things happen. He says, let there be light, and there's light. God. But then in chapter 2, when we get to chapter 2, we have the creation, God resting, and the creation of man and woman. And Moses starts using a different name for God. He introduces this, this name Yahweh, which is to indicate a personal relationship with God. So the writers, the translators in English, translate it Lord God. So he's not, he's not, the title isn't God now, like it was in, in chapter 1, demonstrating his power and his sovereignty, but now it's Lord God, wants a relationship with those that he's created. Then in chapter 3, Moses changes again. In chapter 3, we have the serpent show up to deceive Eve, and Satan doesn't use Lord God. What does he use? He goes back to God. Because he doesn't want her to think of God in a personal relationship. He wants the, the, the woman to think of God as standoffish, just powerful and, and creative, and, and doesn't really want anything to do with you. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lie. And Eve, we even see, takes up using. She would have known him to be Lord God. She starts using the language that the serpent uses, showing that there's already this seed of suspicion that God is not someone that I can trust. He's withholding good things from me. Look at this, though, guys. Title for God changes again. God goes looking for him in the garden. If ever you would expect him to be using the name God, it's now. And they heard the sound of the Lord God. What name is God using with them? And they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Serpent deceived me on eight, the Lord God said to the serpent. Do you see this, church? You see the fatherly tenderness of the Lord? You see his gentleness, the gentleness of his inquisition? He's not relating to them, even in their rebellion, even in their sin, as God creator. But he comes to them as God, their redeemer. 
Scripture tells us he came, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Sometimes I have people talk to me after the sermon. And sometimes I'll get feedback that I wasn't hard enough. (laughs) Got to remember, you got to do something. And, I, and there's times where I, I think the criticism is fair. But sometimes I'm criticized for being anti-law or anti-nomianism. It's too good to be true, Kenny. You can't, you can't preach the gospel in a way that doesn't have us doing something. And as I get older... I love when people criticize me of that because I think I'm getting closer and closer and closer to preaching the good news. If you, if you preach the good news, I'm convinced of this. If you preach the good news of the gospel, you will regularly be accused of being against the law, being too easy. I, Tolkien is one of my favorite writers. He said it right best. The gospel is too good to be true if it weren't true. It's too good to be true. So I'm trying. We're trying as a, as a preaching team, as a pastoral team. I'm trying to preach the gospel as too good to be true if it weren't true. And the tension that we're feeling now, I want you to feel because we tend to think of God as coming to those in their sin as, as the holy judge. And he does come. He's going to hold them accountable. He's going to, there's going to be consequences for sin. But he comes with this fatherly, gentle love that wants to restore the relationship that you have broken. That's the good news. Our holy God, our holy God is also loving. So much that he would rather die than have something come between us. The first step in a judicial proceeding is an arraignment. The second is an examination. In the examination, this is where the questioning takes place. This is the interrogation. It's done in order to determine the testimony of the defendant's statement. Now the divine cross-examination begins. God elicits an account of their actions and goes back over the actions in reverse order. The order of the acts of the fall were the serpent, the woman, the man. God, in in doing his questioning, reverses it. He goes man, woman, serpent. In fact, God doesn't question the serpent at all. He only questions Adam and Eve. Why is that? Because Satan has nothing to learn from the Lord, but you do. God's chief interest is in his relationship with these people that he loves. And their relationship with one another. So he questions the man, two questions. 
Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man responds pitifully. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? These questions are rhetorical. God knows what they've done. He's not looking for information. He's not confused. What's his purpose then of using these rhetorical questions? If it's to educate them and us. The all-knowing detective uses questions to prod the culprits into confessing their guilt, something which you're going to see they really won't do. Calvin and Hobbes. Are you guys familiar with Calvin and Hobbes? I wasn't like a big comic strip guy, but they are funny. Calvin, if you don't know, because it's been out of uh, circulation for a while, but Calvin's this little precocious, mischievous, adventurous six-year-old boy, and Hobbes is a humorous, sarcastic, stuffed tiger. And this is a great one. It's hard to read maybe from out far, but I'll just read it to you. So this is Calvin talk, and he says, Nothing I do is my fault. My family is dysfunctional, and my parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actualized. My behavior is addictive functioning in a disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept responsibility for any of my actions. Hobbes. One of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of ice water. And Calvin finishes, I love the culture of victimhood. Look at how they respond. Who told you you're naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man responds, well, I'll explain. It's, it's easy for me to explain. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. They move right to blame shifting. People are inclined to justify their own conduct by pointing to others' behavior, other circumstances, fate, all used as excuses to somehow justify their own behavior. For some reason, we think it will suffice. God's silence shows that their plea has been rejected. Friends, see the divisive effects of sin. See the trouble that sin brings into your relationship with your Creator and into your relationships with one another. Adam begins with blaming his wife. God looks for an answer and he says, The woman, she's the one. And then he moves to say, whom you gave to me. The girl you gave me. She's the bad one here. He's actually, do you see what he's doing here? He is so unwilling to take responsibility for his, for his, for his own wrongdoing that he is actually saying, translation, God, this is your fault. You have sinned. You have sinned. I have done nothing but, you know, deal with this, with this woman that you gave me. And, I, you know, and I'm starting to question, you know, that big celebration 
a little while ago. Remember when he brought Eve out? Remember that? You know, she was a 100 on a scale of 1 to 10. He's singing God's praises. But now she's a mistake. I don't know what you were thinking, God, but she led to my downfall. I only took what she gave me. People can be so wicked in their desperation to acquit themselves. Haven't you seen it? I've seen it. I've seen people get cornered where it's, it's time to own up. It's time to fess up. You're caught. And I've seen people do crazy, crazy stuff. And I've done it myself. Backed into a corner. God's offering a way out here. Do you know what the way out is? Just got to say, I did it. I'm wrong. Lord, would you have mercy on me? But you're squirming, you're blame shifting, you're denying, you're lying, all just to justify yourself. And I want you to know, even though it's, it's, part, it's part of who we are to do this, it doesn't work. There are marriages in this room filled with conflict, marked by conflict. There's anger, there's distrust, there's pain. Some of it's like that acute pain that you feel like we just had a conflict tonight and you feel it right now like you hit your thumb with a hammer. But some of it is like this just dull ache that you've learned to live with. And there's a simple solution. Now, there's more that can be said because you may need some help. You may need some counseling. You may need to meet with a pastor. You may need to get a counselor. You may need help with some of those things, and we want to help you. But the first step, the first step is really quite simple. It starts with humility. It starts with saying, hey, before we talk about you, let's talk about me. Stop blaming the other and own up to your contribution. God stands ready to give grace to the humble. If you're, if you're sitting here and you're listening to me and you're like, wow, he's really talking to us. He's really talking to me. The solution is easy. Just open your hands to God and say, God, would you have mercy on me? Would you help me? Help me to stop pointing the finger. Help me to stop blame shifting. Help me to stop making excuses. Help me to stop blaming circumstances. Help me to stop talking about the fate has led me here. And, and say, Lord, would you help me? He is poised like a father ready to help, but he's looking for you to own up. Sin, so divisive. See what it's doing to you. See its damaging effects. Sin, just like in the garden, it sets us against our dearest companions. It sets us against the ones that we have loved or loved at one time. It sets us against those we should be loving. And I really, I really believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in our church, at work even present right now, wanting to help some marriages. Some of the marriages are on the precipice. You're like, you're on the edge of destruction if you don't get some help. I urge you to humble yourself, to reach out, to tell somebody. 
and to get the help that you need. It's available in God and even in others. But some of you, some of you, your marriages have become, you're stuck in a dip of mediocrity. You're just mediocre. And you're learning to live with it, and you'll ride off into the sunset. Mediocre. And God has more for you than mediocrity. God put you together to allow you to experience joy and to flourish. But in order to do that, it's going to require some humility on your part. You're going to have to say, Lord, do a work in us. Start with me. We're starting this group, Grace Marriage. It starts on Wednesday night. You've been hearing us promote it for the last couple months. It's not a quick fix. It's an opportunity for you to work on your marriage. Now, here's the thing. Nine couples have signed up for it, and I'm grateful for that. I really am. I'm so glad that nine of you have signed up. Three of the couples that have signed up are pastors and their wives. And not to lead it, to take it, to invest. I'm not a betting man, but I'm willing to bet there's more than nine couples in this church that need to work on their marriage, that need to make an investment into their marriage. And I wish I could tell you we could open the floodgates for all of you to join on Wednesday night. We have a few spots open for this fall. If you want one of them, you better snap that QR code right now and you can get one of the three spots we have left for Wednesday night. If you snap the QR code and you're not one of the first three that do it, you'll get put on the waiting list to join us when we, when we crank it up again. Take a step of humility. Our holy God is also loving so much that he would rather die than let something come between us. Let's move. We've got to move quick. Let's do the verdict. The verdict's really easy. The verdict is what the jury gives. It's the verdict. It's just a pronouncement of innocent or guilty. Every trial has a verdict, and the verdict's not missing here, though it remains unspoken. God never pronounces a, a verdict. It's spoken by Adam and Eve. They both acknowledge, I ate, I ate. Look at the scripture. They both say, I did it. I ate it. But there's this unspoken verdict of guilty. They seek to excuse themselves, but their excuses are to no avail. They're silenced before the God they have offended. And won't this be the same for us on the day we must stand before God? Unless our sin has been dealt with at the cross of Christ, you will be silenced before Him. Paul goes to great lengths in his letter to the Romans to talk about how there's no one righteous, no, not one. We've all turned away from God, gone our own way. And he reminds us in Romans 3, 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who's under the law? All of us. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
There will be no excuses on the day of judgment with God. Evil will be brought to the light. Sin will be uncovered and every mouth will be silenced. God's walking in the garden of your life. I urge you to make peace with him now before that time. He's offering you peace through Jesus. Our holy God is also loving so much that he would rather die than let anything come between us. We've got the arraignment. We've got the questioning. Examination. We've got the verdict. And now we've got the sentencing. The sentencing is when the judge considers the case and, the sen- and sentences the accused. That's the last phase of the trial, and it comes quickly as God moves to pass sentence, and he begins with the serpent because that's where sin originated. We're going to keep looking at some of these passages. Next week, we're going to look at verse 15. I've already mentioned that the serpent wasn't questioned. He's not given a chance to reply. He's got nothing to learn from the Lord. His doom is sealed, and so God sentences him, curses him. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. To curse someone or something is the opposite of blessing them. To curse is to place someone under the judgment of God. It's a decree of doom. When he says he's going to eat dust, anybody who's ever handled reptiles knows that snakes don't eat dust. There are people that actually would say, see, you can't trust the Bible because... Snakes don't eat dust. God's just stupid. If you can't read an adult book, then hold your commentary. Eating dust is figurative. It's a metaphor for humiliation. When you grind your opponent's face in the dust, it's an act of humbling them. The reptile responsible for the demise of the man and his demise is he will return to dust. The dust he crawls on will be a perpetual reminder of his crime. Now curses are uttered against the snake and God actually has a curse for the ground. But I want you to notice this and you're going to notice it more clearly. There is no curse for the man and the woman. There's no judgment of guilty spoken. They are, they are guilty, but God doesn't actually say it. Why? Well, I think it's to show it that the blessing of God has not been utterly lost. I think the fact that he didn't say guilty is of great importance. If he, as holy judge, had declared them guilty, the judgment in its fullest form must have inevitably followed immediate banishment from God to hell and eternal torment. But God postponed his verdict like judges often or at least sometimes do. And when God pronounced his verdict later on, in Scripture, 
the verdict doesn't fall. The judgment doesn't fall on Adam and Eve. He pronounces it on someone else. He pronounces his judgment on Jesus, his own son, who bore the punishment for all who would believe in him as Savior. You see the tension in this scripture? If you're in Christ through repentance and saving faith, the verdict of guilty that should have been yours has been pronounced on Jesus in your place. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. If you're not in Christ, which is to say if you're not a Christian, the verdict over you remains to be spoken, and it will be spoken against you in the final judgment. Look to Jesus now. Here's your chance. We've reviewed Adam and Eve's first day in court. Humanity's first day in court. There was an arraignment, an examination, a verdict, and sentencing. It's been instructive. It's trying to show us and to teach us that our God is holy, but He's also loving so much that He would rather die than let anything come between us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would have mercy on us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that, you're, that you would fall upon us in such a way that those of us that need to take a step of humility, owning up to our contribution, our wrongdoing, before you and before others, that you would give us grace to take that step today. In the name of Jesus, amen.